The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with uh, someone who used to frequent my show but hadn't been here for a while, Kevin Plexico. Welcome back, man. Been a while. Hey, thanks, Mark. Really good to be with you and good to, good to see you again. Yeah, it's been too long. I got I to gotta swing by your digs uh, sometime soon. Um, so Kevin is the uh, Senior Vice President of Dell Tech. Um, so fill, fill people in on what you do, what Dell Tech does, and what GovWin is. Sure. I mean, Dell Tech is a uh, software company and information company that serves what we call project-based businesses. So any, any company whose lifeblood is the, the delivery and uh, sort of fulfillment of a project is sort of the, the focus of our, our products. And we provide software such as ERP solutions and project management solutions to help them manage their business. And also uh, we provide some information products, which I'm responsible for. I have two information products and in our portfolio at Dell Tech, one uh, many in this industry and probably in this audience will know is our GovWin product. That's a market intelligence product that's designed to provide government contractors with uh, information and insights on upcoming procurements to help build their pipeline, as well as market intelligence to help them with their competitive strategy. We also have another information product that's really squarely aimed at the architecture, engineering, construction business. Um, called Master Spec in partnership with our uh, partnership with the American Institute of Architects, but that's a little further afield from from the government contracting space. Uh, well, there's a fair amount, as you know, as you know better than me. AEC plays a big role in GovCon as well. Absolutely. So, so there, uh, um, you guys cover a lot of ground. So, we're going to be talking uh, largely about Deltec's Clarity Study today and tell people what clarity give them a little bit of the history of the clarity study please sure sure clarity is our uh, annual um, best practices and benchmarking study that we do with the government contracting industry so the the, the survey respondents are customers and companies uh, and the, the leaders in those companies that uh, that are actively engaged in the government contract market and we we really look at it from the lens of what is going on in their various business operations from the front end of the, the business, which would be business development through their back office operations to finance, project management, uh, if they're a manufacturing business where there's you know, sometimes a lot of unique manu- products manufactured in the government space for, say, the defense aerospace market, um, as well as things like what's going on in their IT functions. So it's really intended to capture the uh, the state of the market from the lens of the respondents, which is the government contracting community, and also uh, tease out from them how they're thinking about the market, what challenges they're facing, and where they see um, opportunities and, and what steps they're taking to sort of respond to the competitive landscape to be successful. So that's the history of the uh, of the study, and we've been doing it for over a decade, and uh, and it's it's really a great 
uh, tool that we provide to, uh, to, to the industry to really just help them level set and maybe just compare what are they seeing in their business and what are other companies seeing uh, to sort of cross-reference the, the, the environment and what steps that, that they're taking relative to what their industry counterparts are doing. Cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the research is, is great. I've had a chance to, uh, to review the study, uh, in, and I've spent quite a bit of time with your study. Uh, so let's, let's get into uh, what, what, what are the company's attitudes and mindset towards the market at this time? Yeah, I think uh, let me just level set that the study was conducted early part of this year. So I wanted to just maybe uh, level set and, and remind everybody what that environment was like. That was on the heels of the appropriations getting done for 2023, which uh, if you you know pay attention to what the timing of appropriations was last year was about three months sooner than we got appropriations last year in 2022. We had basically a six month delay, you know, halfway through the fiscal year before appropriations got done. This year, Congress gave sort of a early Christmas present, if you will, and passed uh, 2023 appropriations um, in December. And those appropriations were pretty, uh, pretty positive. Most agencies uh, and, and certainly most uh, of the subcommittee appropriations uh, were increases over 2022 that were not um, not insignificant. So uh, so I think companies were looking at the market from the point of view of, hey, if you're looking at the government space, it's a pretty attractive space. We've had uh, a trend of increasing spending. Uh, but I think there's uh, there's also what I would describe are some of the macroeconomic effects that that are having an impact on the market. We we were um, sort of on the tail end of what what many have called the great resignation, where a lot of companies were facing uh, a lot of staff turnover uh, people being attracted to other jobs that were very similar in other companies with pretty significant pay increases. So there was a lot of attrition from a people point of view. We also were uh, sort of in the early days of uh, the Federal Reserve stepping in to stem the, the growth of inflation uh, by starting to raise interest rates. So I think it's it's interesting because companies are bullish on growth. Um, but we really saw in the results was they're also pressured on profits because, you know, as we all know, uh, most government contracts are multi-year contracts, and those prices are sort of negotiated uh, long before we saw the, the inflationary pressures kick in. Uh, so while companies are seeing this great growth environment, they're also challenged with their margins because uh, the prices that they had extended were done before inflation hit in, and now their staff costs, their manufacturing and product costs, and sort of uh, supply costs have uh, have skyrocketed, relatively speaking. And so their their margins are pressured uh, on those contracts that they do have. So that's that's kind of the landscape. So I think companies were generally favorable and bullish on the market, but also um, still ironically focused on how do we optimize the business to squeeze out more margin out of the business, given the inflationary pressures that we saw during that time. OK, how, how does these things impact the various functions in a company? Well, if you think about uh, obviously the financial operations, they're sort of the uh, the ones accountable for the financial results of the company. So they're the ones who are putting a lot of pressure on the other business functions to find uh, find money under rocks to uh, to squeeze out more margin from the business. And they're also the ones who are looking at the inflationary costs and putting pressure from you know say a pricing point of view. Um, on the business development teams that are trying to be aggressive in their uh, in their proposals with their pricing to win deals, 
Um, but, you know, they're recognizing the inflationary landscape and they're increasing costs. And, you know, I think there was a lot of challenge in figuring out what's the right price for this upcoming procurement, given the, the rising cost of inflation and products that we're going to need to win the work, but also be profitable. So I think it probably had as much impact on on the financial side as anything else. Um, I would say on the business development functions, you know, we've really seen age, uh, companies uh, willing and eager to invest in business development because they're recognizing that there's opportunity out there that they need to get after and for them to do that effectively, uh, especially with the, you know, sort of return to work environment and meetings getting more back in person. Uh, I think there was a, 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 a war for talent for business development professionals to start to get more customer intimacy, start to get out more in industry and start to, to mine for more opportunities that can build pipeline to, to really take advantage of the growth opportunities that are in the market, especially when you consider that some of those growth opportunities might be in agencies that they're not currently doing business in. So those are, those are sort of the, the big picture items, I would say, as we saw across functions. I guess the last one I'd mention is, is no surprise here, but the IT functions of the um, of, of companies is under a lot of pressure given the increased focus on cybersecurity regulations, um, policies related to CMMC, which seems pretty on track to, to start to find its way into the many civilian requirements as well. So uh, so I think there's you know kind of a, a push and pull there with, you know, hey, we want to reduce our IT costs, but at the same time, we need to invest more in cybersecurity to be competitive and comply with the requirements of our agency customers. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about CMMC because, you know, it's stop, start, stop, start. We're changing the board. Uh, we have a semi-new direction. We have different levels. Um, it, I, I will ask this, though. Is, is it moving ahead apace? Is it really going to be implemented now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's happening. Uh, it's, it's obviously like anything in government. It happens a lot slower than... Uh, even the government expects and predicts. Um, but, I, you know, there's no doubt in my mind it's coming. And, you know, even though it's not in place yet, you know, there's a lot of things companies can be doing to prepare for it. And I think the smart contractors are are taking the steps to do that and and get prepared uh, because they are going to start seeing it show up in, in requirements. I think next year you're going to start to see it start to pre, uh, play a, a front front frontline role in some procurements on the defense department. And I don't think it's going to be that much longer down the road that we're going to start to see it in, uh, in some civilian agencies as well. Yeah. I'd, I'd be surprised if, if it does roll out soon, I'd be surprised if it didn't roll over to civilian fairly quick. So, yeah. All right. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower off center on the federal news network. I'm here with Kevin Plexico of Dell tech. Um, Dell Tech provides a variety of, of services to the industry. Uh, find them at DELTEK.com. And Kevin and I will be back to talk about the spending outlook for uh, FY24 right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Kevin Plexico of Dell Tech. He's the Senior Vice President for Information Solutions at Dell Tech, DellTech.com. Uh, Kevin, talk to me about the uh, the spending outlook. What are, what are we going to see this year, this FY24? Well, if I can level set a little bit with, with 23, um, as we talked about, you know, a few minutes ago, uh, 23 was a, a really strong year with uh, increasing in most appropriations and certainly the, the total discretionary budget increased um, 
certainly not insignificantly compared to what we've seen in prior years. So, so I think 2023 was a good year. We've already seen pretty aggressive spending uh, from, from agencies through the year to date. I don't think Q4 is going to be quite as outsized, at least on a percentage basis, as we've seen in previous years, just because appropriations got done so early. So when we have appropriations done early, agencies have more line of sight on their spend earlier and, and they don't need to, you know, kind of make the mad dash at the end of the year to spend uh, a bunch of money that they're about to lose. But, you know, it's still it's going to be a larger than every other quarter for sure. As we look ahead to, to 2024, you know, one of the key uh key activities that happened just recently was the, the the passage of that fiscal responsibility act of 2023 so this was basically the the debt ceiling bipartisan agreement that that put the debt ceiling issue to the side it suspended the debt limit for two years and uh that that set i would say top line spending and the top line spending outlook for uh for 2024 which essentially was allowing defense spending and i don't mean capital D defense, I mean defense as as, as in defense versus non-defense, um, which is a little bit different than the defense department, but non-defense uh, spending was allowed to increase about three and a half percent. So it seems like there's there's pretty bipartisan support and acknowledgement of the sort of the, you know, the national security risks and challenges that we face between the, the war in uh, Ukraine as well as uh, the challenges with China. But on the civilian side, uh, you know, I think the key part part of that agreement was um, basically calling for flat spending year over year. But the year they used as the base year was 2022. So keep in mind we had this big increase in 23 uh, by anchoring the 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 spend to flat spending for 2024 to 2022. You're basically calling for a pretty significant reduction to the tune of about seven or eight percent. In civilian agency spending for uh, for 2024, and and the big question is how is that going to be doled out by appropriators? That that that's a lot. That is a lot. So um, so can can you give us kind of a a feel for agency by agency spend? I mean, DoD is going to still have the bulk, right? Yeah, I can take you through uh, maybe just the progress that the appropriators have made uh, year to date. Uh, if you look at the Senate, the Senate Appropriations Committee has passed on all uh, appropriations for full Senate consideration, but the Senate hasn't taken it up yet. So that's still to be done. Uh, if you look at the House, uh, most of the appropriations have gotten out of committee and uh, are, are ready for, I'm sorry, have gotten into committee uh, and are sort of waiting for the committees to pass it on. I think there's only one appropriations bill that's gotten out of committee for full consideration by the House. Uh, just reading the tea leaves of the House legislation, it, it, it sort of reminds me of what we saw during the Trump administration. And just for a little bit of history there, what we saw during the Trump administration, at least in terms of of the administration's budget requests was calls for pretty steep increases in defense spending that were going to be paid for by pretty steep reductions in civilian agency spend. Um, that's not ultimately what appropriators did, but uh, but you might recall there were some pretty draconian calls for cuts in agencies like the State Department and EPA were some of the ones that uh, that were facing you know cuts that were to the to the tune of twenty to thirty percent reductions. And that's what we're seeing um, from some agencies in 
in the civilian agencies, at least from the the early versions that are coming out of the house. So uh, just thinking out loud, I remember the Interior Department had something like a 20 to 30 percent reduction uh, in spend with that interior and environmental uh, appropriations. The um, finance and general government appropriation also had a sort of a similar level of reduction passed out of the house. Uh, I think when I looked at the transportation department, that was a little bit more optimistic and certainly the VA and military construction also was a bit more optimistic. So uh, at least on the house side, they seem to be going after uh, certain appropriations such as interior environments, state departments, um, uh, general government and financial operations, which is obviously where the IRS is as well. Uh, that you know that you should consider to be a little bit of political maneuvering. I think that's you know obviously the House is controlled squarely by the Republican Party, and that's what we're seeing come out of that. Uh, on the Senate, it's a bit more moderate, but uh, you know the devil's in the details, and that's where the risk is to you know the timing of appropriations and getting done. And of course, you know, as you know, the irony of this is we've we've got agreement on top line spending. Uh, the the devil in the details is how are we going to get to the agreed cuts that. Uh, that we saw in that debt ceiling bipartisan agreement or the Fiscal Responsibility Act that uh, that ties the knot on the agreement of the level of spending there. And I think that's going to create a lot of contention. I think there's one, um, maybe one piece of information that's uh, that's important to note about that same piece of legislation, which is there's a little provision in there that um, that was intended to give Congress and both parties a lot of incentive to get the appropriations done by January 1. And that is essentially that there's a provision in that uh, that debt ceiling agreement that says if appropriations are not done by January 1, then effectively there's an across the board 1% reduction in discretionary appropriations for the year. Uh, so that gives both parties, which would, you know, neither party would want that. And that gives both parties sort of uh, equal equal incentive to get appropriations done at least by by January 1st. Uh, Kevin, have we ever seen a provision like that before in the appropriations that that, you know, if we don't reach an agreement by this date, there's an across the board cut? I haven't seen it in a continuing resolution uh, or a um, a sort of bipartisan two year agreement like we've had many years in the past. It sort of reminded me of the, the the sequester and the Budget Control Act, that's the closest I can think of as an example where um, they basically said if Congress wasn't able to agree on appropriations that tied off to the Budget Control Act caps, then that would call the sequestration to go into effect. And, and for those who have been around for that, we had that for a 10-year period of, of the Budget Control Act um, kind of lingering around every year. And, and that's why we sort of got these two-year bipartisan budget agreements that seemed to happen. I think it happened for at least three to six year periods um, that uh, that we used to, to kind of get around that sequestration provision. But it sort of reminds me of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it there's something new in the mix every year. Uh, the more the more contentious we get, the further apart we get, the stranger these agreements become to me. It, it, it is sort of a recognition by Congress that uh, they work best when they're under the gun and there's a crisis. As, as sad as that is, um, you think about, you know, September 11th and the Department of Homeland Security, the war in Af Afghanistan and the war on terror and, 
this, you know, even more recently, this uh, this debt ceiling issue. You know, Congress works best when they're under the gun and and under pressure and, and facing a crisis to get something done. Uh, it's it's a sad state, but it, it is what it is, and at least they're recognizing it. So they they tend to artificially manufacture these types of uh, critical events to, to force their hand. Yeah, sad but true. All right, we're going to take a break um, with Kevin Plexico of Dell Tech. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Kevin Plexico, Senior Vice President of Dell Tech, and we're discussing the latest clarity study from Dell Tech. So we, we have a lot of requirements for supplier diversity uh, and compliance. What's this doing to the competitive landscape? Give me, give me your, your 25,000 foot view and take a dive whenever you need to. Sure. I would say in terms of supplier diversity in the government market, uh, you know, despite the, the fact that we've had a pretty, pretty, um, you know, dramatic increase in government contract spend, you know, just because of the, the gamut of things that the government's been investing in, COVID relief, infrastructure, uh, some of the legislation that's passed over the last several years, as well as the, the, the buildup in funding that we've seen for the Defense Department. So, you know, we've seen a lot of growth in the market, but the irony of it is that we've actually seen a decrease in the participation of vendors in the market, at least as it relates to the number of unique prime contractors. It's gone down by about 20 to 30 percent over the past decade. And I think the administration and the SBA have become sort of hit to this issue. Uh, so a lot of the um, the initiatives that we've seen come out of the administration and the SBA and GSA have uh, have come out with the intention of helping to educate small businesses on the opportunity in the government, help them, helping them to navigate the environment. We've seen the administration also with with its uh, its sort of initiative around diversity, equity, and inclusion, trying to put special emphasis on the small disadvantaged business uh, programs and and um, uh, and really the 8A program to uh, to improve the access to small disadvantaged businesses to contract dollars in the market. Uh, but at the same time, we've got this landscape where, you know, there's IDIQ contracts and GWACs that are getting used more and more. And those effectively are consolidating the number of contract opportunities for companies. And at the same time, you know, the cost of doing business with the federal government has only gone up in the last decade with cybersecurity requirements. Recently, some of the requirements around climate change and reporting carbon footprint by companies uh, we've also seen diversity, equity, inclusion policies. So there's a lot of additional compliance requirements that companies are having to deal with. Uh, supply chain requirements is another one I would I would throw out there that I think are are making it expensive, uh, as well as fewer prime positions. So there's sort of this this push and pull. On the one hand, trying to attract new entrants to a pretty attractive market in terms of growth, but uh, but it's it's squeezing out companies because of the cost of doing business and the complexity. Yeah, the the growth and stability of our market is literally unquestionable. Uh, And there's all, you know, I saw an article in one of the major trade pubs, uh, Forbes or Business Week or somebody a little while back that was talking about, uh, you know, basically outlined that it's relatively simple to get into the market. They didn't say it was simple to win business, but they implied that. And I, I, I really think the market is not served by the uh, by the uninitiated 
talking about the market in ways that that mislead a lot of small businesses. Yeah, I think simple. Um, I could I could argue it's it's simple, but it's certainly not inexpensive, and it's certainly not fast. Uh, you know, I always say the federal government uh, has this unique kind of aspect where the first contract you win with a federal agency is probably going to be the most expensive contract you ever win. Um, but you know, once you've satisfied a lot of their compliance requirements, it's it's uh, relatively easy and straightforward to leverage all the work and investment in terms of compliance and capability instrumentation that you've built to go after other types of contracts. And that's why we see, you know, some vendors, specifically some of the large, what we used to call systems integrators that are so diversified. I mean, you look at companies like Lidos and SAIC, I mean, they're doing not only IT, they're doing operations and maintenance and some uh, program management and professional services. I mean, the gamut of services they provide, you could only describe as highly diversified offerings and it's because they are leveraging this this uh, compliance capability to apply that to a lot of different types of work that they do across government and we when we look at a government rfp especially one of these idiq or gwac rfps you know they're giving an incredible amount of credit to uh to companies that have sort of been there done that in terms of demonstrating their ability to to do idiq contracts their ability to comply with government systems requirements like earned value management and approved accounting systems and, you know, all the things that kind of come with, um, with doing business in a federal market. And so, uh, you know, so again, once, once you get into the market and you've, you've navigated some of those requirements, it's easy to, to leverage that to, to other types of work and grow your business in that space. And you're, it'll probably be one of your most stable customers uh, as well, unless you're, unless you're not doing good work. Right. As long as you're satisfying the customer, your CPARs are up, uh, your recompete is it's never a slam dunk but it, you know it's pretty safe but are you seeing an uptick in uh those larger firms owning the requirements to satisfy small business set aside so talk about the operations and maintenance side that that Alidos or SAIC SAIC's been doing it i think longer than a lot of other people because, uh, you know, they, Fort Detrick and places like that where they've done work. But um, are, are, are they picking up the set-asides and do the, should, should those smaller companies, you know, who are in janitorial arenas, should they be looking to sub or, you know, I don't know that they can prime anything. Yeah, I think, um, I think as we look at house small business spending has manifest, it's actually outpaced the growth of the market by quite a bit. Uh, I think if you looked at small business contracting versus, you know, we'll say call other than small business contracting, um, the growth in small business contracting is outpaced uh, other than small business by about 50%. So small businesses are getting uh, an increasing share of the market. And there's no, no question about that. Uh, but to the point earlier, it's just it's a fewer number of small businesses that are that are enjoying the, the benefits of that. So uh, what one of the things that we did see in our clarity study is the growing importance of subcontracting relationships for the large primes who are recognizing that uh, a lot more business is getting set aside and the government has a, a greater preference for small business They're You know, I think they're starting to recognize that they can't just grow through prime prime contracts and they have to rely on small business, I'm sorry, I guess I would say they have to rely on small business primes 
to subcontract to them to find some growth through the subcontracting mechanism so that they can help those small businesses be successful under those contracts. And at the same time, you know, these large IDIQ contracts that um, where the government clearly is is using them to uh, to do very, very large projects that historically would never have been competed as the task order and would have competed, been competed as an RFP. And they clearly want large businesses to do it because they think they're the only companies that can do it. Uh, they're being forced to, to and them being the large primes are being forced to subcontract out more and live up to the subcontract commitments they're making when they, when they, you know, when they receive the initial award. And I think, you know, small businesses are really focusing on that since they're getting squeezed out of prime positions uh, as a prime, they're, they're focusing more on where, where can they subcontract to support the larger primes in some of those large scale projects that they're winning. Okay. Uh, while we're talking about smalls, let's touch on some of the changes for eight A's. Um, what are you seeing here? What's the environment for eight A's? Yeah, there's a lot going on with the eight A program. Um, you know, the eight A program for those who might be less familiar with it is is really when you talk about small disadvantaged businesses and the administration's efforts to increase small disadvantaged business contracting. Uh, the best way agencies to really have to affect that is through the 8A program. You know, we don't have a small business set aside program or uh, uh, capability anymore. Like we have like a woman owned small business or a service disabled veteran owned small business. It's really the 8A program is the small disadvantaged business program. And that includes not only individual business owners, but it also includes a lot of the uh, the 8A companies that are owned by the tribally owned uh, businesses and the Alaska Native Corporation. So uh, so that's the primary uh, focal point when the administration talks about increasing small disadvantaged businesses through the 8A program. At the same time, uh, the 8A program has always been under the gun for uh, for sort of its, its um, posture as an affirmative action program. And I think with the Supreme Court ruling uh, earlier this year on uh, taking issue with uh, with race-based college admissions preferences and affirmative affirmative action at that level, uh, it's pretty easy to see how the 8A program could be in jeopardy as well. And there was just recently uh, a court ruling, a federal court ruling in July that uh, that challenged the 8A program for the way they were determining whether an individual was socially or economically disadvantaged, and that has led to the a, the SBA. Uh, putting a pause on new applications to the 8A program. They're not uh, approving new applications into the 8A program while they while they take some time to reassess uh, this issue. And I'm, I'm no legal expert, so I don't pretend to sit here and uh, have the ability to argue the point of it. But, but certainly if you're a company that's aspiring to be an 8A, uh, you're going to be probably in a holding pattern for a period of time while the SBA figures this out and sorts this out. Yeah, we but we both have people we can turn to to say what the heck's going on with this ruling, uh, and we're not going to get into that here. We are though going to take a break and come back and talk about bellwether opportunities in the market. I'm here with Kevin Plexico of Deltech. Find Kevin on LinkedIn and find Deltech at deltech.com, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back, Dam Tower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Kevin Plexico of Deltech. Uh, Deltech provides a variety of services, uh, contract information. Uh, take a second to to talk about GovWin, and then we'll take a look at the uh, value of the top 20 opportunities. 
Sure. Uh, as I shared earlier, GovWin is a market intelligence platform that's that's really designed to help companies uh, find opportunities in the market and uh, and build their their go to market strategies and, and market strategy to to help grow. Uh, we provide not only information and insights on upcoming opportunities uh, in the federal, state, and local education, and most recently in the Canadian public sector market. Uh, but we also provide what I would describe as sort of a lot of uh, surrounding insights and information around market trends, um, budget budgetary information, and sort of data that the company would need to get smarter about their customers and prospective agencies, uh, as well as the companies that are competing in the market, both for the sake of building teaming arrangements, uh, as well as doing competitive analysis. So we're, we're really focused on helping companies uh, grow and succeed in the government market, whether it be at the federal, state, local, or U.S. and Canada levels procurements uh, coming out in the coming fiscal year. So for 2023, uh, we had a record in terms of the ceiling value uh, of the top 20. It, it was in excess of uh, almost $500 billion, which is by far the largest. So you can just you know do the math to see the average size of those procurements. And it, I know when I entered this industry, a billion dollar procurement was a pretty, a pretty rare bird. And uh, now they're, they're pretty commonplace at this point. And you know most of them are um, are IDIQs these days. I think what I would say when I when I also first came into the market, most of the major procurements were sort of uh, large scale systems integrations or base operations contracts that were awarded to a single vendor. And when you won the work, you knew what you were going to win. Uh, yeah, you days, got to sell anything. Yeah, yeah, you, you you won the contract, and you were the only one that was doing the work. And and these days, uh, you know, you're winning a contract that. Uh, that you really is just winning a right to compete for future work with a with a smaller competitive pool. But I think the other thing that's worth noting is these ceiling values on these IDIQs used to be very aspirational. Uh, they would award them, and you know you'd see a twenty million dollar, I'm sorry, twenty billion dollar ceiling value, and you'd sort of know in your mind that yeah, they're never going to get there. Uh, but that's really changed. If you look at the, the Alliant procurement, you know they've actually extended. Alliant 2 and increase the ceiling because they hit the ceiling, one that we never thought they would hit. And some of the ceiling values on some of these newer IDIQs uh, are remarkably large. Uh, you take Soup 6, which is probably going to be 50 billion, Alliant 3, which is probably 75 billion, the T4NG, which is probably 60 billion. I mean, these are, I mean, this was the size of the federal IT market not too long ago. <laughs> and they're one yeah, for really. So it's, it's just remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was extremely fortunate back in the early mid-90s when the Super Mini contract was awarded. Again, it was a single award IDIQ, uh, PRC won it. It was a nine-year, $11 billion contract, and I was retained to advise on the marketing side. So, And that, that was obviously the biggest contract ever awarded at that point. And again, I, I was just I was blessed to be invited to play. Um, and and it was huge. It was just huge. Yeah, it's, not, it's something you'll never forget being a part of that, I'm sure. No, uh, obviously I haven't because it was 30 years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the, uh, the set-asides kind of for a sec. We've had a couple of contracts kind of go on hold lately like Polaris, uh, that were largely focused on providing a GWAC-type vehicle for smaller businesses. Is this going to be on uh, uh, hold until 
that court ruling is uh, determined to be, you know, valid and and how it impacts the other set aside programs. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I think asking, really... I'm asking you to speculate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think you know these vehicles are always subject to protest um, because the stakes are so incredibly high, as we talked about with the value. And you know, the other element of it is it used to be that when you were protesting it was sort of perceived as you're essentially suing your customer, which is you know, not a very good place to be in if you're a company suing your customer. Um, but these days, you know, these IDIQ contracts, you're really not suing the customer. The customer doesn't come until after the contracts are awarded. So the stakes are so high and you're not really suing a customer, you're suing the organization that's just administering the contract. Uh, the end customer is gonna be the, the people that come along with the, the, the unique task orders that that follow and, and they're not going to have the memory of what happened with the protest on the original award. So all of these um, vehicles take an incredible amount of time and energy to set up and they're always prone to protest. I think we've already seen uh, protests on some of these vehicles we've talked about, like Oasis Plus. Uh, and so, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me. And yes, these are going to be slowed up and uh, delayed until these types of protests and court rulings get resolved. There's, there's no surprise there and probably no, uh, no issue with saying that. It's, it's just a matter of whether the agency can stomach the, the process of navigating it and staying the course and accommodating the, the guidance that they get from GAO and the courts on how they need to adjust the process to be fair and equitable so that they can ultimately get to award um, and then once they get to the award, yes, the, I, I understand that task orders are protestable too, but, uh, but you know, you hear about that a lot less because the stakes are much lower and there you are tending to be more suing your, your customer versus these IDIQ contracts. So I think the protest environment is just here for us to stay, uh, particularly with these large bellwethers. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap up on what you consider to be the keys to success in the government contracting market. You have four C's. Yeah, we, we call it the four C's. It's, it's a bit gimmicky and, and maybe in some ways motherhood and apple pie, but I think it's important and companies really do lose sight of this. Um, it starts with capabilities. And at the end of the day, um, government customers are, are people too, and, and they buy from people they know and people they trust. And uh, they're really looking at companies that can be differentiated. And, and I always put it this way. If you think about the number of vendors in the market compared to the number of unique buyers, uh, the buyers in the market are greatly outnumbered. So if you're a, a small business and you say you do software development, you probably sound a lot like about a thousand other companies that that uh, agency is trying to, to sift through when they're trying to decide who to award their work with. So I think uh, companies need to be laser focused on um, identifying what their specialization is and not only being able to articulate it, but also be able to prove it with past performance. And I know there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing for, for new market entrants. How do I prove past performance if I you know, can't win a contract? And that's, you know, that's obviously where we see most small businesses play in subcontracting. The other C is customers, customer relationships. Uh, you know, depending on what you provide, you know, different agencies buy different things. Uh, you know, what the DHS buys, the Homeland Security is, is very different than what you'd see the Department of Education buy, which is very different than what NASA would buy. And quite honestly, very different than what the State Department would buy. So really understanding how your capabilities map to customers is important. And then uh, the 3C that I, I would point out is, is we talked about is, you know, contract vehicles. 
each of these agencies, we talked about the State Department looking to set up their own IDIQ contract. If you are not uh, on the Evolve contract and you're aspiring to sell IT solutions to the State Department once that contract's awarded, it's going to be tough sledding for you. Uh, so really, you know, recognizing where the customers that you're seeking to do business with and what purchasing vehicles they're going to be using is important. And I, I always like to remind uh, companies that, you know, at the end of the day, the program office is not the one that decides the contract vehicle the agency is going to use. That's the acquisition shop. So, uh, you know, the acquisition shop is the one that's making the decision on the vehicle. And I, you can bet they're going to use the vehicles that they're comfortable with, regardless of what companies are on that contract. So that's just an important uh, thing to consider when you, you you might have a great relationship with the program office based on your past history. But uh, if, if that's not the direction the agency is going with the vehicles they're on and you're not on those vehicles, you're going to find it very difficult to compete in that agency. And I'll just briefly touch on the last one, which is compliance. And we talked about this a little bit. Each agency's uh, contract vehicle uh, gives a lot of weight in their evaluation criteria to uh, companies that have demonstrated capability to comply. And this is where I see small businesses really being able to separate themselves from, from the sea of other small businesses. Those that you, know, you talked about earlier come into this market thinking it's going to be easy and thinking they can just put in bids uh, are going to be really disappointed and not able to compete effectively versus those companies that have really put in the, the, the foundational capabilities to comply and have looked at compliance as more of a source of competitive differentiation versus sort of this begrudging task they have to do in order to, to do a contract. So those are what we view as kind of the four C's of success. Uh, it, it's, I would say any company needs to be mindful of those, but in particular, small businesses, because there, there's so many of them compared to the others, and it's much harder for them to differentiate versus a large business that has a track record. That is true. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today and sharing this uh, information on the Clarity Study. I'm assuming people can find the Clarity Study at deltech.com. They sure can. The report is free, and uh, the webinars are recorded as well if somebody wants to tune in at some of the webinars we've, uh, we've provided for them. Yeah, it it is great information for anyone doing business with the government, regardless of what you do, IT, maintenance, or even products. So uh, go to deltech.com, download the report, read it, and listen uh, to slash watch the, the webinars. Kevin, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Mark. And also, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you for your participation in helping us uh, with the Clarity Study yourself by providing your own feedback and being willing to be interviewed. So appreciate being with you today and appreciate your support. Thank you for inviting me to participate. Uh, this is not my day job. I need to thank Kevin for uh, pointing out the importance of differentiation for small businesses. This is one of the things that I provide. I advise companies on the marketing side, particularly developing a differentiated position, helping build a subject matter expert platform for small companies, and we leverage content and LinkedIn with that. If that resonates with you, drop me a line, Mark Amtower at Gmail. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 